Hey y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, success in the music industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 53. And we're back. I'm super excited to officially be starting season two. I've got a ton of great guests in the works for this year, and like I discussed in episode 52, some very cool new ideas and plans that I've been working on as well. So what do we want to talk about today? There's an idea that popped up during the interview this week that really stuck out to me. It's the idea that everything you're doing in your life blends together to really shape your skill set. To be more music-specific, if you're an artist, gigs that are unrelated to your artist journey will make you a better artist. If you're a producer, mixing a record or doing a film score will make you a better producer. The idea that other areas of your life make you better at your core focus came up last season as well, way back in episode 15, with my guest mastering engineer and producer Noel Jackson. Noel alluded to the fact that he drew inspiration for his music from areas outside of music, places like design, architecture, etc. So this all made me think about your life experiences and how they all interact. I started thinking about this podcast. Sitting down and interviewing people and putting it out in the world has made me a better mixer. That sounds crazy, but it has. For one, it's a confidence boost. I've been releasing content into the world every week for a year. Sometimes, an episode doesn't feel, quote, perfect to me. Maybe it wasn't my best day as an interviewer. Maybe it wasn't my personal favorite intro, but I know that I've done the best that I can every episode and that I have to be confident and just put it out there. And this idea has rolled into my mixing. I finish my mixes faster. I know when I've put my best work in and I'm confident that it's ready to go to the client. I don't worry about perfection and quarter dB volume moves and all that stuff that I'm doing only to satisfy myself and make me feel like I've made it perfect. Another thing I've taken from the podcast is the ability to communicate clearly. I think that my communication with clients has improved. I've learned to navigate a conversation to get to the root of what the artist is looking for and save us all time during the mix process. Now, did I start a podcast to become a better mix engineer? (laughs) No, of course not. But these experiences added to my cumulative life experience to make me better at my main job and focus. When you've honed in on what your goals are and you've niched down and locked in your career focus, you'll subconsciously apply any lesson you learn to that focus. We're all doing it every day. You might steal an idea from a book, from a movie, from a casual conversation. If you're in a serious relationship, your experiences with your partner will influence the way you work and create. The experiences you have with your friends and family, same thing. Everything you do comes together to shape you. And who you are is what shapes the type of creator, manager, employee, or whatever that you will become. 
And I know on this show, I talk a lot about defining success for yourself and finding your big goal and then breaking it down to the next smallest step so that you can take action on nothing but your goal. And that is the inspiration for the show, and I do believe that. But I want to remind you that sometimes those next steps might be a little bit of a side quest. You might need to take a quick detour to level up your character before you get back on the road to the main objective. Think about it. If you want to be a great pop music topliner, maybe that side gig doing lyrics for a jingle house isn't all that bad. Maybe there's something to learn there. If you want to be the next Hans Zimmer, maybe playing synth in a pop band isn't such a bad idea. It literally worked for him, right? So remember that a career is the cumulative effect of all your experiences and all of your jobs. You've got to have your sights set on your goals, but you can't ignore the value of experiencing things outside your direct focus. So before we jump into the interview today, I wanted to take a second to thank all of you for listening to the show. If you're new, welcome to the show. I hope you enjoy it. If you're a longtime listener and you haven't left a review on Apple Podcasts or shared the show with a friend, maybe take a second while you're listening to this episode and shoot a text to someone that might enjoy it. Also, if you don't follow us on social media, it's at ProgressionsPod pretty much everywhere. You can send me a message there. I love to hear from all of you. Also, feel free to shoot me your guest recommendations there as well. I want to get people on here that you all want to hear from. And lastly, there are links in the bio to our Patreon and also to our YouTube. There's going to be changes coming to both of those platforms in the coming weeks. So you might want to uh, subscribe to the YouTube so you know when that launches. And so without further ado, here we go. Today's guest is artist, producer, and composer Keely Bumford. Keely releases her music, a blend of genres ranging from dreamy synthwave to indie art pop via her artist project, Dressage. And when she's not working on that, she's doing about 100 other things. She co-wrote and was a featured vocalist on Jai Wolf's single, Better Apart. She co-scored as well as wrote and performed all the original songs in the Hulu Blumhouse film, My Valentine. She was also featured on Andrew Huang's Four Producers, One Sample YouTube series, resulting in her single, Holy. And she has loads of sync placements in various shows and ad spots, including Netflix The Crown and an Apple Watch trailer. Her latest EP, Terror Nights, Terror Days, is out now. So let's get into this. Welcome to the show, Keely Bumford. Thanks hey, so much Keely, for having me. Hello. I'm great. How are you doing? I am good. I am good. You know, something about that intro, there was a lot of words that I don't say normally. And it, even when I was practicing it, just like out of breath the whole time. <laughs> oh, no, I thought it was good. I do that too. I like, well, I've been doing a lot of live streaming recently and I'll be talking and I'll just be like, why do I feel like I'm running a marathon? This is kind of pathetic. But you would like immediately speed up. I don't know. There's something about the microphone. Oh, yeah. Anyway, um, already tangenting off topic. So, you know, that, that's how it goes here. Yep. Has to. But yeah, I, thanks for coming on the show. I know you're probably busy. I think we tried to do this last year, but you said you had like a, a big project come up that you had to knock out. Did you end up getting that thing all panned oh, out? I mean, who knows what that could have been? This is my <laughs> life all the time. But yes, yes. Uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I do remember having this on the books and then being like, oh, wow, I am being asked to deliver a thing that I am really not prepared to deliver yet. So thank you for your flexibility with that. No, it's fine. This is great. Uh, so normally we would like jump into your story, but I was just listening to um, Terror Nights, Terror Days before we jumped on. And uh, normally I don't swear. I leave that to the guests, but it's fucking so good. It's so oh, good. Thanks. Oh my god, I, uh, I love, I love, I love fucking. I love that word. It's such a good one. So <laughs> appreciate that. Thank you. 
But uh, yeah, I don't know. I was just, it, I was sitting here on headphones, like, you know, doing a little research, taking a few notes and like just the the changes and the production, like it's just really impressive. Well, like, so can we talk about that before we talk about your story for a bit? For sure. Was that a pandemic project or were you working on it before the whole 2020 debacle? <laughs> I was working on it before. I had kind of that an interesting, like I was working on it Man, that that project really did come in kind of stages because I got right in the middle of it as I was like really in the trying to finish up production stage. All the songs had been written. I had gone on this writing retreat to the Central Coast in Cambria in California and had written the songs at this like beautiful house on the ocean. And I ended up filming some of the music videos there as well. This was probably July. I remember actually I went to dinner with my friend Maggie Levin who wrote – and directed My Valentine, which is the Hulu film that I worked on um, in 2019 that came out February of 2020. And there was an earthquake on July 4th. And I remember we were at dinner and she was telling me about this project and the earthquake (laughs) happened. And what ended up happening was that I was like really deep in my EP. And then this really awesome opportunity came with the Hulu project. And so I kind of set it aside basically from like August to January because I had to write five songs that had to be filmed too in all, by like a month later after I'd found out about it and then continue working on the production and, you know, getting them out in sort of post once they had been filmed to that because the character sings all the songs. And then we we scored it within, I mean, it was like, I think that we got a locked cut like right around Christmas and it was due like mid-January, maybe end of <laughs> January. And so it was just like, boom. So... A lot. It was. It was really cool because I think I actually got better through that experience, oh, and I nice. think that I probably needed to have that to like really revisit the EP. So when the lockdown happened and the pandemic really sort of was like, oh, okay, this is actually a thing. It's not just like a news story that seems really distant and strange, but it's actually happening. Um, yeah, I really like kind of locked myself down in my studio, which I already do normally. So it didn't feel, it felt kind of like a nice coping mechanism to be like, all right, well, this, this is normal. Even though a lot of people are having to do this, like, you know, work from home thing that feels really strange to them. It's very normal for me. So I'm just going to finish my EP. And so I would say I did that for like the first few months of the pandemic, the first quarter of it, perhaps. And then felt real strange about releasing it basically that whole year and waited kind of until the end of it. So that, that's the long story of how it came to be. I think I put out the first single, Who I Am, October of 2020. And then I kind of, you know, throughout like a year later of the pandemic being like, okay, I think I can handle releasing, even though that's a whole other story of strangeness, releasing in a pandemic. And then sort of like have been putting it out through throughout 2021. Cool. Well, yeah. it's it's great. Everybody should everybody should check it out. It's Thank you. really impressive. So, well, let's talk about. Obviously, you're really talented. Let's talk about how you got there. How did you get started in music? Where did you come from? A musical family? Did you play when you were a kid? I yeah, my I don't really like no no professional. Well, I guess my grandmother on my dad's side was a I don't know if professional is really the word, but she was like a stride pianist and she played a lot of gigs in Concord, Massachusetts. Kind of was known as like the jazz piano lady. So there's definitely always been, like there's always been music in my home, but like there's really no one else in my family that ever did anything professional with it. And yeah, you know, I mean, I did a lot of things growing up. I was really lucky to grow up in a beautiful place in the Northwest, um, Bellingham, Washington. 
My parents, you know, I grew up riding horses. I grew up skiing and hiking and playing soccer and doing all these different things. And sort of as I continued to get a little closer to late middle school into high school, discovering, for me, really, it was like discovering jazz and the Great American Songbook. I started to really zero in on, I had been singing, I had been being, you know, playing flute and being in choirs. But then I was like, oh, I, like, this is something for me. I think I had gotten into musical theater and was like, singing stories in front of people actually makes me feel the most like me I've ever felt. And so I think that's really where I was able to, like, I think, you know, in middle school, I was like, I want to be a marine biologist. And so (laughs) kind of through that, I I think every middle schooler thinks that they want to be a marine biologist. Um, Yeah. So that's kind of where, I mean, that's kind of, that's, that's sort of how it kind of got to be me being like, all right, I'm going to take this seriously and do this. But I have, there's always been music playing around me growing up for sure. Cool. When was that musical theater get serious age? I would say like senior and junior year of high school. Oh, okay. <clears throat> yeah, I, like freshman, sophomore year maybe. Or not, sorry, sophomore, junior year, not senior. So the early like, you know, kind of in that moment in high school, I discovered jazz. Like I was, I was sort of studying opera, so I was singing bunch of classical repertoire. And then I was kind of also getting into jazz and doing a lot of the, you know, high school jazz choir, that whole scene, very specific scene. And I think that I, through discovering artists like Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, I then started discovering the Great American Songbook and fell just like madly in love with that. And then as we know, that's very, you know, tied to musical theater because a lot of those songs are from shows and so as I was starting to, you know, get like the lead role in one of the plays in high school and getting that sort of like, I'm a star, they love me kind of feeling. It was like, <laughs> even though like I was terrible, it was enough for me to to want to, you know, want to do it on more than just a small little regional theater level. But I never even really went into theater. It was always about singing for me. Nice. That's amazing. And so then <laughs> just from my readings, then you ended up, in Boston, Berkeley College mm-hmm. Music, right? Is that, that's how it went down? Yes, that's correct. I went in thinking I was going to be a jazz singer. And then, but also like, you know, alongside this like love of jazz I have, I also grew up like idolizing Fiona Apple, Alanis Morissette, Sheryl Crow, Paul Simon, Bob Dylan, like specifically in, in the Cranberries. A lot of it for me, I think in my sort of formative years of like having music taste really was pulled towards women who were really speaking their truth through their lyrics and sort of in that era of like 90s, 2000s, female, I don't know, pop, but sort of alt pop. And so I think that that, once I got to school, that sort of, I don't know, thirst for like truth telling met the vocal thing that I loved about singing and performing. And that's sort of when I started to really see okay I love singing songs but like actually I feel way more connected when they're my songs and then that kind of turned into oh well I feel way more connected to a song and to a recording when I am shaping the production and all the different sort of like fabric of what is happening because it's all it all feels very one and the same to me of telling a story is the way that a background vocal sounds it can be as much you know you can transfer as much information, I think, as like a lyric or a melody in sort of like the texturing of what you choose in production. So oh yeah, that's sort of how it all led me towards that. That's awesome. Yeah, I completely agree. It's like producers now shape things so much 
that if I get files to mix that don't really resemble, you know, the rough mix, I just, I have to call them back and I'm like, you guys did so much work. This rough mix has so much going on. Like you, you have to commit these things because mm -hmm. it's like, it, it informed all the creative decisions that came after, you know, it's, it's really it's interesting. So I think then I can remember even because I was in the music production engineering major at Berkeley and I can remember like this was still when we were learning mixes on SSLs and these funny little Sony boards they had. Um, <laughs> and there was like the mix library of the songs we could choose. And it was like there was just no creativity in in like the kind of in the box way we're so used to now. Oh, yeah. um, it was just like, OK, cool. Here's like the drums from like the shitty in the room recording. Here is the guitar that has, like, no taste in the sort of pedals that they're using. Like, and that, you know, that's very intentional in that kind of setting you're learning. But right. I think that it is so interesting that producing by way of, like, just capturing a band in the studio is just not what it is anymore. It's like you're, you know, you do that and then you sculpt it and then you create all of these, you know, automated effects and all these different things that you're going to do. And you need to commit that before you go to the mix because otherwise, like, what are you going to do? You're not going to recreate that. And why oh, would you? Well, you know what I mean? Take forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's it would never really, happen. Never happen. No. And yeah. it's, I just think it's really interesting how production and mixing are very, way more like one and the same than I think they even used to be 10 years ago to me. Oh, I think they've become so, so intermingled. I almost feel like if you're a great mixer and you're working with great projects, you, you've become like, a, like kind of a cleanup problem solver mm -hmm. because the yes. creative decisions and the balances have basically been set and that's not your uh that's not your thing anymore it's the, that stuff yeah. is done so but totally. i gotta ask you uh were you at berkeley at the same time as me you're talking maybe. about the, those awful mix one tapes and the sony boards i'm like <laughs> yes. you couldn't you might maybe a little bit after me but i think all that stuff is gone <laughs> oh yeah no it is it is i mean basically i got out i i graduated in 2010 and so like by the time i was leaving they're like cool thanks for all your tuition we're gonna build a really nice like okay high rise of studios end, yeah. now it okay. was cute you that you were learning on that crap but um <laughs> those tapes yeah. were awful they were so bad oh, god they were so bad Oh, man. And it's really interesting. I mean, even in 2010, like, we were only using Pro Tools mostly as a way to get from the SSLs and just have it be like, okay, this is your tape machine, and this is how yeah. you're going to take it home and work on it. I interact with people who are at Berkeley right now, and there's, like, full production in Ableton classes, which I really wish existed back then because that's it's just not realistic for me to be only using Pro Tools as a way to get it from a console, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, how was your overall, how was your experience there? Did you enjoy it? Did you feel like you were prepped and ready to go for the world? Um, I, I enjoyed it because I think it's such a special cooker of like creative enabling. And I think that it really, like, I remember feeling super high stakes about everything and being like, oh my God, my career hangs on this mix for this like whatever professor and it's just I wish that somebody would have been like relax like the, literally all these professors who are like making it seem like they have connections to the industry actually don't <laughs> and like <laughs> chill out because you can make all the mistakes you want you can you can be bad here just be bad and then you know I, I think that I was probably too precious thinking that everything I did while at school really mattered and then I realized once I got out of school that it actually didn't matter at all and I think that I learned the most post-Berkeley, but I also think that I was able to learn the most because I had a lot of really good foundation of 
you know, even if it was just something simple as like understanding signal flow to understanding how to collaborate with people and what the studio environment felt like. Yeah. I think that that, and, and of course, you know, the, just the whole community you build while you're there. Totally. totally. I think that yeah. is the really, the really positive side of what I experienced. I think that especially being a woman in that major, I was really intimidated a lot of times. And that sort of is how it played into that, like not being allowed to feel like I could be bad because of, you know, of a bunch of re- different reasons. But I think that that was one thing that I, I'm happy to see appears a little different now with women that I know in that major who are students now. They, they're just like, they don't care. It's awesome. <laughs> That's cool. That's great. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree with you. Everything you said, I agree completely. It's, it's about as, uh, they, they do the best that they can. You know, you're set up, you have all the tools. And then when you get put in the world, you can kind of relearn everything faster the right way. You know what I mean? Yes. So, yeah. I think that there is, there's a lot to be done in, I think, like creating connective tissue between, okay, you have all these skills. What is a realistic way that you're actually going to make a living past Boston being a college student? You know, like, I, I think that a lot of things I was lucky and just figured out, but I don't know that there was enough I don't know, sort of like real life tying into like how how it's going to work or what it looks like for these people who are doing it professionally right now. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with that as well. It's um, uh, yeah. It but the connections are good. the The city is amazing. Did you stay in oh, Boston yeah. afterwards, or did you get out? I was. Let's see. I think I finished like a semester early, and I worked for sort of a whole like spring through fall or spring through end of summer. I was a bartender at the Harvard Club, <laughs> um, which was awesome in itself. But yeah, I love that city. I really, I think that I, you know, by the time I was like ready to go to LA, I was, I had that whole like, oh my God, I'm moving to LA. I'm so excited. But I really miss living in a city like that, being yeah, walkable yeah. and you can't go anywhere without running into people you know. That's so cool. That happens in LA if you, you mm. go outside enough, which totally. is whole crazy to me when you run into somebody at a coffee shop and you're like there's like 20 million people here wouldn't it? it's crazy yes but i know great. but you see you start to see like the niches of people and communities really do stick to like a specific set of cafes in a specific set of areas you know <laughs> that is true that Which is very true yeah yeah no it's good okay so then you go to la mm-hmm. what was the goal was it to did you want to like produce and work in a studio did you want to start doing your own music like, yeah where's your head at at this point Oh man, I I wish I knew, honestly. Sometimes I look back and I'm like, was I like blacked out for my early 20s? Because I just like don't even remember thinking critically. <laughs> it's like <laughs> kind of embarrassing. Um, I'm sure I did on some level, but uh, yeah, so I went, so I'm, you know, being from the West Coast, I think I definitely felt that feeling of like, it's LA, New York, or Nashville. And I felt like LA felt the most easy of a transition for myself. I, I knew enough people, I think, that were already going to be there who I had known through MPE, and I'd already done a few studio trips, kind of like going around all the studios. You know, just, I think it's just the vibe felt right for me. I was in a band at the time with this other girl, and we came out sort of as an artist together and, you know, grew apart, and that's totally fine. And so I think, like, initially, I don't know, I even when I went into MPE, I I knew I didn't want to work in a studio necessarily, even though I did, I ended up working at Interscope. I really wanted that the like that set of tools as an artist. I was actually really afraid of getting sort of put into being 
always behind the scenes and not like actually the the storyteller, the artist. And so I was really intentional about learning those things, but never really getting lost because I felt that I, you know, I needed to to say whatever the hell I thought I needed to say. <laughs> um, and that really actually served me because I was, when I moved out here, I was one of the only vocalists who knew how to record themselves that I knew. And yeah. I ended up really having a pretty like robust amount of people and composers that would hire me pretty much because of that, because it was sort of more rare to, to find singers who could write and record themselves well and deliver files on time and all that kind of stuff. So I'm really also glad to see that that is super widespread now because, like, I can't even imagine, you know, oh, with yeah. the pandemic, I think that really nailed it home with, like, you have to be able to record yourself because we all need to survive and, you know. I think I set up every singer I've ever worked with with an interface and, and a how-to tutorial. And I was like, yeah. I'm never going to see any of y'all again. You're never coming over again. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think that's great because I, like— yeah, I mean, I paid my rent for years singing the most random ass songs you could possibly imagine. But I got really good at being, you know, very quick with learning songs by ear, um, mm. really quick with comping and punching in and engineering myself and just understanding how to be, you know, the most effective in terms of like getting a vocal cut in a professional way that was going to cost me as much time as the, the thing was paying me, which usually was not very much. So Right. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. That has served right. me very well. Yeah, I feel like I, I, I've done, I've said this so many times in, on the podcast, everybody knows I should probably stop. I've done so many songwriting sessions. It, it always, I know that people come and they collaborate together but it always blew my mind how many people wanted to go to a studio and knowing that that money was going to go out of their pockets somewhere down the line when they mm -hmm. could be set up at home and have a nice, comfortable situation, get your scratch vocal and, and your idea out, you know, and be able to take a break in the backyard for free. Yes. And so, yeah. So not being able to like, you know, take care of that for yourself is like, such, puts you at such a disadvantage, especially if you're just going to do what, sing a demo you're going right. to go book a, a room for two hours. You're not going to make any money. Right. hundred percent. So you mentioned that you were very intentional about wanting to make sure that you, you focused on having a voice and not getting lost behind the scenes. That's seems like a very like wise thought. So was there a point in your life where you were kind of aware that you didn't want to, that you always wanted to make sure you were in charge? You know what I mean? I'll phrase yeah. that horribly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think even, like, I can remember, um, uh, I think maybe it was Stephen Weber, who's a, who's a professor at Berkeley. I think I was taking his, like, intro to music technology class before I declared a major. And I think I was, like, I went up to him and I was, like, hey, can I still be an artist if I do this major? And he's, like, yeah, for sure. Like, why wouldn't you be able to do that? And I was, like, yeah, you're right. I don't know why I'm putting that boundary up for myself. Okay, cool. Thanks. Um, <laughs> and so I think it's, you know— I don't know about you, but for me, I feel like there, I've just had this like series of learning the same lesson throughout my career of, 
And it looks a little different each time where it's like, oh, okay, I'm making myself smaller right now because it feels a little safer, but it's actually not what I want to do. Like I'm in this band with this other person and we aren't really on the same page, like creatively or where we want to go. And I, you know, I'm doing it because I'm afraid to be a solo artist. Okay, cool. I'm going to be a solo artist because that's bullshit. I think for me, it was also like feeling like I needed somebody else to produce me or co-produce with. That was a big sort of moment where I was like, I can do it myself. Great. Yeah. So I think, I think because Berkeley and maybe this era of like my professors that I had sort of came from this place of like, you're an engineer or you're a producer or you're a guitarist or you're like this. And it's like, like we've been, we're talking about production and mixing is so one and the same now. I feel like all the roles are also one and the same. I think that by getting out of that binary way of thinking, that has helped me stay true to that. Like, I'm not going to get lost in, you know, working as this one thing that I can do, but not necessarily that I want to do more than this other thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I asked you an awful question, but you gave the answer I, I wanted <laughs> oh, to hear. Good. Okay. But uh, yeah, I I agree completely. I, I didn't learn all those those lessons like you did. I did a lot of things that, you know, that were just paying the bills or they seemed like the mm. right thing to do because I was like walking down that engineer path that, you know, was laid out in front of me like, you do this and you're assistant and you do this and you do this. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I regret that. So I'm, I, that's why I wanted to highlight that you apparently didn't have that problem. You were kind of aware of getting stuck on a on a path that yeah, you know, wasn't exactly what you were doing, which is which is great. A lot of people but don't th- have that, for sure. And I I think that I there's definitely been like you know little seasons where I have been stuck in the path and been like, all right, this is feeling that like that lesson I keep learning. I don't <laughs> want to do this because yeah, I mean I know I know that some of my closest friends were like did the long haul thing of like assistant or you know runner assistant engineer at somewhere like the village. I know you worked at Capital. It's like, it's such a, it's such like a narrow, not narrow, but it's just like such a thing, right? It's such a path and yeah. it's such a culture. And it, it there is so much that is amazing about it. And I like, I love LA studio culture in that way, but I can understand how it would feel very one, like one thing, right? Well, for me, I noticed, you know, I think when I came out here, Everything was like it was in the midst of changing. Like the the whole industry was changing. The the laptops were taking over, and it's like at the end of my time at Capital, I was starting to see that all of these roles were like they were hazy. I was doing sessions where the most common thing I would do is somebody would walk in, they'd put their laptop down, hand me their duet, and be like, "Cool, you can plug the mm-hmm. two fifty one into the Neve into the CL one B, and then you can plug it into my duet, and then leave your number on the console." Yeah, and I was like, "Cool, this sounds like." eight hours of sitting in the hallway. And I started to see that. I was like doing engineering for vocal sessions and stuff like this is not a sustainable thing anymore. Everybody can do everything now. That was my kind of my hint of like, all right, we need to we need to start switching it up here. So what did you like when you had that realization? What were the moves that you made or like the sort of intentions that you set for evolving from that? Uh, Well, that was just like that was just like a little piece of tinder on the fire like I didn't it didn't really all click for me but it took a minute for me to really realize that you can get like pigeonholed in this industry even though you think like oh I know that I mix and I can play guitar I know that I can do these 10 things but everybody sees you doing that one thing and when that one thing is not what you want to be doing that's when you run into that that problem is everybody calls you for the one thing you don't want to do 100% yeah yeah 
And I mean, we all know people who are very successful at the one thing they don't want to do, you know? <laughs> it is, it is, it's rough. It's true. It, it, yeah. Anyway, there's a, a, cl- a classic progressions tangent. <laughs> I'm here for it. Let's see. I wanted to ask you, I have a whole list of questions and now I've, I'm all confused on where we are. Uh, how long did you work at Interscope? Was it just like a, just a little blip? It was time? a little blip. Yeah. It's so funny. So at Berkeley, I worked at the studio office. So I had, and there, um, my boss there had a really close friendship with the studio manager at Interscope, which is like also so powerful. And MP&E is that all of like it's, it, I think it's actually quite easy to be like, okay, go work at the village, go work at this place, you know, because yeah. I think that the, the graduates from that program, like for the most part are pretty legit as, as you know, even if they're just like runners, they're like, they're good hires. So I had a couple friends who had graduated before me and were already at Interscope and they were hiring because Jimmy Iovine had just bought American Idol. And so they were doing mm-hmm. like, I think I worked there for maybe one or two seasons of it where they were doing this crazy thing where like the every week the contestants would record a cover song with like th- just insanely massive producers like Don was tricky Alex the kid like all of these people were coming through the Interscope studios and doing cover songs with these like random TV <laughs> contestants which was so interesting but it was really cool because I saw you know I just was able to see like all of these huge producers in their camps come through and I was kind of working more I was like I don't know like a shift manager, I guess. I wasn't like a runner or in the studios, but I was like sort of in the office of the studio being like, you go do this and you go do that. And that was tough. It was really weird telling my friends what to do. I was not good at it. And so I I, I moved on. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I still have very close friends that work there. And I actually was given an opportunity to, um, to film some live songs in their new facility a couple months ago. I just released Who I Am live from Interscope today, actually. Oh, cool. Um, and so that was, yeah, very wonderful. I, I have a lot of love for the people that work there still that I used nice. to work with a long time ago and was bad at, at being their boss. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard to, to uh, yeah, to manage people that are your age and your friends. Like, it's such an oh. awkward one. It's laughable. Like it is. I would get yelled at, and they'd be like, "Why didn't you tell this person to do that thing that you're supposed to tell them to do?" And I'd be like, "I don't know." LOL. <laughs> <laughs> I'm <That's>, 20. <laughs> so that's yeah. that's classic. Okay, so let's let's kind of work like to how you ended up, you know, really becoming your own production writing just machine. Like, when did dressage start? Um, dressage started, so I had this duo project called Black Kettle with my friend Kaylin, first moving out, and then I, that sort of ended, and then I had a project called Hotel Cinema, which was, like, a five-piece of Berkeley kids all trying to, like, out-Berkeley each other. We made some (laughs) cool music, but it was very, like, what if we went into seven on the bridge, and then what if we, like, modulated, and then, then it was just, it was a lot. Um, That is the best description I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, people loved it, but it, it was being in a band is so hard. And this was one of those lessons I kept learning where it was like, oh, I need to be a solo artist because I have to be responsible for what I want. You know, I can't like expect four other dudes to be like down with the thing that I want and vice versa. It's not a fair agreement unless everybody is super on the same page. So I started building what became Dressage 
in like 20, I don't know. I think I re- I released my first EP of that work in 2018. So did an EP. I did a handful of singles and then I did this EP and now I'm working on a record and kind of in between like the Berkeley Berkeley band and dressage becoming, I had been doing a ton of top lining and working in this sort of like EDM space of like just writing and writing and writing mostly in this top line capacity. And so I think a lot of that era also was very helpful in me just like getting confident on my own, not being like, oh, I need to be in a band. I need a co-writer for a project. And so it's all, you know, as everything, it's all this like stepping stone kind of framework of getting to what eventually became the thing that, you know, I feel is most myself, which is dressage. Yeah, that's awesome. When you were doing the, all the top lining stuff, was that, uh, were you writing the tracks? Were you going to sessions and doing the LA blind date thing? <clears throat> oh my God. The LA <laughs> blind date thing. It was kind of a combo. A lot of it was getting tracks from DJs who knew my voice, knew my work, and wanted me to do like a top line for their project. So oh, okay. it would be that kind of thing. Or it would be like I would write a bunch of songs you know, just piano, vocal, or, like, really basic production ideas. And then those would be pitched out to engineer or to um, producers. Sorry, what am I trying to say? DJs, and <laughs> who are also producers. And then they'd, like, sort of build a, a track around. Some I worked with those people, but a lot of it was sort of, yeah, very separate. Like, vocal and track are very separate in that world, which is interesting. Well, another advantage of being able to record yourself and deliver a a professional vocal, you have yeah. better chance of being the featured artist at the end of that too. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I did a session. I can't remember what DJ it was. It was like one of the, like one of the name, like one of the guys that everybody knows. But I was so surprised because when I got the track for the top liner to write to, it was four on the floor kick, like sub bass and pad. And I was like, yeah. this is it? And uh, the the top liner was like, oh yeah, this is how he he sends everything. It's just just chords. I just write whatever I want, and he does he does his stuff later. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, all right, yeah. It's so, really interesting, and it, I think that that model is also so strange because like the big artist name is the DJ, but like they don't usually have that much to do with like writing the content of the lyric or you know what I mean. It's it's yeah. really an interesting little phenomenon that has continued to exist which I don't think is going to go away. It'll just turn into something different, but it's interesting. You've done really well in the sync space. That's a world that a lot of artists really wish they could break into. Was there a way that you got in there? Any tips for people that are just stuck trying to get their foot in the door? Oh man, it's really, it's so hard. It's really tricky. I mean, it's it's so interesting. I went to, I was at a, a BMG writing camp a few months ago and it, was a lot of people coming from the pop world and looking at me as somebody who's like, yeah, I dabble in the pop world, but mostly I'm doing stuff as an artist or for sync or both. And looking at me being like, how are you, like, how is that? How do you do that? And I'm looking at them being like, how are you, how do you get cuts? Like, that's not even something, I mean, I think I know, like you have to, you know, that's a whole thing. That's just not a game that I'm really that interested in doing primarily. But it is interesting because it does seem like those worlds are really separated which is unfortunate because sync is where the money is and that's where the most sort of equitable splits still exist for songwriters in the publishing fees equal as the recording. I think that probably if I traced it back, it comes from me being 
you know, this remote vocalist for hire who started working with a bunch of different composers who are going to be reaching out to me being like, hey, I need a vocal, I need a vocal for this Jeep ad that I'm doing. They want this kind of thing, you know, and so it would be that 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 composer would be hired by Music House. The Music House would hear my voice and like it. And then they'd come to me for another composer who needed a vocalist. And eventually that sort of turned into, oh, you can write too. Do you want to write this? Oh, you can produce too. Do you want to? So it kind of like grew as I stepped into being like, yeah, I can. I can do that. I can do all that. Yes, I am your person. Those music houses started to come to me a lot more frequently. And then it kind of just grew from there. I mean, I think that I'm still, you know, I'm still on on the journey of like the really big sort of like golden goose ones that I would really like to be existing in where it's more like dressage songs are getting placed in these, you know, sort of big tastemaker shows or films. Yeah. But I definitely think that it's been a long haul of working within this community of people who work at music houses. And then maybe they are, you know, a lot of the people that work on sort of the business side of sync also move around companies a lot. So it's really cool because I know somebody from this place that all of a sudden are now a music supervisor at this agency and I already have a relationship with. So yeah, yeah, that's kind of how it's, it's evolved for me. It sounds like a lot of your, uh, like a lot of your network and your relationships have come from the fact that you were a great singer that could record themselves. A hundred percent. Yeah, that's. I mean, that sounds and, like and that's I was, exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I was put in the right. I was I was luckily put in contact with people who were willing to keep calling me for projects. And you know, like it was mutual. I I brought value to them. But one person in particular is a composer named Gabriel Mann who did. Um, I mean, he did all of Modern Family. He's done a ton of just a ton of stuff, and he was one of like the early composers who was calling me a lot and bringing me in and then, you know, telling other friends of his that are composers about me. And yeah. you you just never know. I really try to do that for other people when I meet somebody who's starting out because like he doesn't, he probably doesn't even realize how much he did for me just by bringing me in on certain projects and then other people hearing my voice on that project. And so I always try to remember that when I'm in the position of being able to bring somebody in you know, to a new opportunity that they don't have without knowing somebody like me, even if that's not, you know, a smaller level, it's still really valuable, I think. Oh, yeah. And you never know who you're going to interact with and, and you know, what they'll get out of a relationship. Even if you don't, even if you're not doing work with somebody, you might introduce them to somebody else and that might be a big break for them. So, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, this is like the craziest LA story, but I remember somebody who I had worked with recommended me to a friend of theirs who was like an MD and literally kept my email for like six years and then emailed me one day and was like, hey, this person gave me your email a long time ago. I'm MDing for this artist who's going to be on Ellen next week. Can you come sing backgrounds? And I was like, yes. <laughs> yes, I can. So, so can. done. It's just, it's just a crazy, I mean, that's like exactly the kind of stuff that, that, uh, is meant when people say you have to be in LA or you have to be in New York or, you know what I mean? Yeah. You have to be, you have to be in the community and just kind of mm -hmm. around. You just never, you never know. Yeah. And you I think that know. that thing of like, you just don't know when, you know, you maybe think that some connection isn't going to go anywhere, but it, you just don't know how it's going to circle back once they see your name somewhere and are reminded of your existence. You know, it's, it's cool. Yeah. Being like top of mind for people, it is, uh, 
you know, every time a song comes out, every time your name comes up, people are like, oh, I remember her. Yeah, she's great. Mm-hmm. I get to call her next week and catch up. Yeah. And then and then next thing you know, you're doing a movie or whatever. Right. Um, so kind of along the lines of your, your sync stuff, I know you mentioned like you wish more of it was dressage. And I kind of had a question that I was trying to figure out the best way to ask. And I think that kind of sets it up. Obviously, you want to do dressage and you want to make your own music all the time. When it comes to do these syncs, are you able to like blend it a little bit? Or are you very strict about yourself of like, okay, here's the brief. I'm not going to make this me. Mm -hmm. I'm really going to go after getting it. Is that like a hard fight for you as an artist? I'm finding, and this is sort of like something that I'm calibrating for myself right now because I have done, I've done a lot of work in ads, trailers, and promos. And that, I find that world... Not always, but that world is a little bit more creatively boxing in than something Mm. that might live in a movie, in a TV show. And so I'm sort of, I mean, I still work in those spaces and I, you know, I will never bite that hand that feeds because I, that is wonderful and I'm so grateful. But I do think that what I have my eye on now are ways that I can be genuinely myself and still write something that works for sync. But I think where it's going to live more is going to be in this like film TV world versus an ad or a trailer, because those are quite, first, they're like quite transient, right? Like how many ads are coming out each year? How many trailers do we see all the time? And most of the time, you know, I'll sing on a really cool trailer, but like my name is nowhere in the credits. And so what I find with TV shows Recently, I just had a cover of a Bob Marley song I did placed in the Netflix show Virgin River. And that turned into, because of Shazam and because of Tune Find, which is a really great way to like sort of track songs that are in film and TV, that placement got 100,000 Shazams and like immediately turned into like 300,000 Spotify plays. And so I think that when I see really compelling like data that you can track like that where you're like oh wow I just did my thing it was a cover but it was me doing it as I would do it myself genuinely that translated into that many people hearing my voice and hearing my interpretation of this song yeah versus singing on this you know whatever it is I just don't know if if it lasts quite as much as when like sort of more cinematic stories and emotions are told that match with music and the way that ads, or sorry, in the way that um, film and TV does, if that makes sense. Totally. It's also, yeah. it's a longer moment too in the, if you think about like Shazamming, like no one's gonna Shazam a trailer in a movie theater while they're waiting for the new Star right. Wars or, or whatever. But Shazam to me is crazy just because I, I've never in my life pulled my phone out to like see what was playing like on a TV show, but it happens all the time and it, and it oh, breaks yeah. so many artists. I think that it's, you know, it's really, it's really powerful. It seems like quite a simple, you know, action. Like you're just taking your phone out and pressing a button. But for people to do that is like, it's a big effort versus just like casually listening to a Spotify playlist. That's pretty passive. It's not really as engaged, but you can like, if somebody is doing this and being like, eh, it's like, that is really meaningful in terms of catching and retaining an audience. And also just to your point of, you know, in a trailer, like sometimes those things are done, actually most times those are done as custom pieces. And so they're not always even released and they're not even Shazamable a lot of the times. So, so yeah, I I mean, this is sort of where I am playing with this blending of like, okay, I want to be myself. And I also would really like my songs to be matched with these 
you know, this visual medium that I really care about because I, I am working in, you know, composing and I do write songs for TV or for movies and things like that because I feel such a strong relationship between music and picture. So, yeah, that's definitely on the top of my mind. So a, a kind of a, a hard shift back to your production and and writing. So for your, your EP, you wrote, you wrote, recorded, produced, mixed? Did you mix? No. No, okay. Hell no. Okay. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, I don't know how you could keep perspective, but even just to get through like the no. end of perspective or the, the end of production. <laughs> as, Is it also the end of perspective though? Because <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> that is true. Very, it was, it was a good, a good uh, slip up there. Yeah. Um, how do you keep perspective getting to the end of that journey, especially like on your record that you started and then took a break and then came back to, do you have any, any tricks that help you? I mean, no, because I didn't. <laughs> it's fucking hard. Well, I do think that taking the break actually was really good perspective because being able to get songs to like 70%, everything's recorded, everything's done. It's just like, okay, how am I, like, what all do I need to mute in this? What is all that need, you know, what can I sculpt still? Just being intentional with production. I think that being able to put it aside for a few months, work really hard on something else, get better in different ways, and then revisit it was the perspective that I needed. But I have said this a couple times that now that I've done that, I don't ever have to do it again. You know, like I now that I know that I can produce everything myself, cool. I will do that when I want to do it. But okay. for this record that I'm making right now, I'm like doing all co-writes. I'm like doing co-productions because I am out of my own ego. I know that I can do it now. I don't need to like prove to myself that I can do it. And right. listeners don't give a shit. So, so yeah, I think that what I learned though was that on my first EP, I worked with dear friends of mine who, you know, we would I would go over to their studios and we'd work in their studios. So at the end of the day, Everything kind of lived on their rig. And I found that, and then I would, you know, at a, some, at a certain point, take that and really sculpt it to the end of what I wanted it to be. And I'm finding just the simple way of starting things that are living in my DAW. And at the end of the day, I can go home and open the session back up. Just being in like physical possession of these songs, even if I'm co-producing it with somebody, feels like I'm in control in the way that I need to feel in control. And I think that I've seen so many friends of mine who are, you know, primarily female artists who are really intimidated by production, even if it's just demo, learning how to demo, who are just totally at the will of whoever's computer their stuff is on, you know? And so I I kind of really learned that I don't ever want to be in that situation. And so I'm having a lot of fun working with a couple friends of mine who are like really solid players in ways that I'm not, you know, like I'm not a bass player. So if I'm working with my friend who's a producer and a really sick bassist, we're going to get something really cool in a way that like we, he can even hop on, you know, my, it is interesting because when I'm trying to do the production writing and artist role in a room, it's like one too many things. So I'm, I'm still playing with that. It's like, it's a lot. It's like, it is a I lot. need to write the song, not think about the snare sample, but it, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot because I think that collaboration when you don't have anything to prove to yourself is like really the 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 most easy flow and what you're going to get the best songs from. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. I didn't think about that. It, yeah, you because you have done it. So now you don't feel like you have to do it. You feel like you can take a step back and let somebody yeah. jump in and mess around. 
And that's going to take you to a place you would have never gone on your own. Yeah. And I think, you know, that just comes with, from, with maturing too. Like, I really think that I, because I felt really threatened for most of my experience at Berkeley and sort of after stepping into being confident in production, I think that I probably got a little too intense about being like, I'm going to do it all on my own because I had just been in a, a lot of alienating situations. And yeah. I think that going through, I don't know, it's almost like healing in a way to have kind of rewritten that for myself and been like, all right, well, I just want to work with people who are dicks. <laughs> like, great. <laughs> and and when you kind of get out of your own way, you see like, oh, actually, there's like a whole community of people that are totally down to do whatever version of the production, co-production, I produce everything that I want because it's not like a question of like, if I know what a microphone is, do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, obviously yeah. I know what I'm doing. So there's, there's like, yeah, there's a lot of just getting out of my own way, I think. Well, you you kind of mentioned it a couple of times. What would you say to like yourself fresh out of college or or to to somebody else that is kind of hitting having the same struggle where you you feel like you're victim to not being able to do it yourself or mm. that you're not supposed to do it or or whatever it is, you have something yeah. to I mean, I think really it, what it is is just like it's that permission to not know and have that be okay and and the permission to be bad because I think that this is definitely something that girls are very programmed with from a young age of like, if you can't do it perfectly, you shouldn't do it because you don't want to look weak, small, stupid. And I think that there's also a lot of like toxic patriarchy that is also programming little boys that same way. And so I think that for me, I I wish that I would have just heard like, it's okay to not know. And here's information. Be open to knowing new information because I think that when you start to feel like you are being, uh, if it's in your own mind or or if it's coming from an out, outward source, like you are less than because you don't know and girls don't don't traditionally do this. So you don't belong here. I think you start to believe it and you build this like pretty hard shell of not really being willing to like learn because you're so afraid to look like you don't know things, even though like you might not know things because you're afraid to learn because, you know, it's like it's this weird vicious cycle that yeah. I think, luckily, I'm seeing, like, I, I just have so much hope because there's so many young women, um, especially in the Berkeley community, who are doing a lot of work in changing this sort of culture around production and recording and just, like, studio atmosphere to be more inviting to be, you know, a novice at. Like, we're, nobody is comes in knowing everything. So yeah. that that was sort of, yeah, that's my perspective on that. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's great. I mean... Every time I've seen somebody that, you know, quote, doesn't know something or they're new, like those people, they always do something that you would never think of either. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll have an, an intern or assistant and I'm like, what are you doing? Wait, mm -hmm. do that again? Yeah, wait, what are, <laughs> yeah. What are you doing though? Do, do that again just a little slower and then never do it again. Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, anyways, I, I was going to say something else. Oh, I was going to say my, my experience is um, I've been thrown off of the Pro Tools rig by more female top liners that wanted to comp their own vocal than uh, than male singers, and and it's and it's and they fly. I'm I'm yeah. not going to name name names, but I, I've worked with some artists that are ridiculously fast at Pro Tools. They kill it. It's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. A, it's coffee break for me. <laughs> yeah, it's great. no, and I'm and I mean, what the good thing too is like you in that environment. Anybody in your position could be like. 
they you you could be like, no, you don't know. You probably don't know what you're doing or like you could alienate them in some way. But like for you to enable that is like that's all that actually matters in that situation because then you're showing everyone else in the room they can do that too if they want. You know, it's like yeah. I think that's when it gets away from that. Like you are the engineer only. You're the singer only. It's like we all do all the things and we can kind of like all rise up together because we have these skills and people fill in holes where somebody is like really good at one thing, not as good at this, you know, I think yeah. it's important. Yeah. It's, you know, everybody in the room, they're all, it's, it's all teamwork to get to the end of the, a great song. And I mean, whatever it takes, like yeah. I'm, I'm always down to do whatever, but last couple questions before we go. Uh, I think a lot of people have had this had this happen in their career you had a couple like big moments where you were really like pushed out in front of a big audience i'm thinking of like the jai wolf feature that you were also a co-writer on and like the andrew huang thing did you feel as an artist you were like set up to take advantage of that moment when your name was pushed out in the world i do yeah i mean and i'm like ready for the next ones <laughs> um, <laughs> Perfect. like let's go come on uh yes so with sajib who's jai wolf um, he and I have been, we've, I, he was one of those artists in the EDM sort of top lining moment I did that I was, I had worked with a few times and we just had, didn't really have a song that stuck. And then finally, you know, as I was like most me and I was dressage, I wasn't dressage back when I first met him, I was able to do something that aligned for both of us. And that was actually a, a situation where they were trying to find a different, some some other artist and like probably a bigger artist. And then they liked my vocal to the point where they're like, actually, like, we just want you on this. And I was like, exactly. And so. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so um, that was great. I mean, we, he brought me out at the Shrine, two sold out nights at the Shrine in LA, which was like 5,000 people, which was amazing. Um, and then he also brought me to, to Austin City Limits in 2019. And so. For me, having even like, it's not like it really changed, you know, those experiences didn't change things like overnight for me, but it definitely put me in front of more people. And I think it just solidified that feeling of like, oh my God, I want to do this. Like, I want to do this as my tour. Okay, this is, I'm on the right path. Just like, just keep going. You know, this this person is using his platform to uplift me and I'm I'm very grateful to him for that. And kind of the same thing with Andrew Huang. I mean, I'm such a fan of him for all of his work that he does with bringing people. He uses his platform in such a beautiful way. Like, he knows so much. He's so excited about music. Like, there's yeah. just not a bad vibe in that dude's body. Um, <laughs> and he uses his his amazing Four Producers One Sample series to really uplift up-and-coming producers. And a lot of them are women and people of color. And it's really important work that he does and with that, it was really interesting. I mean, I I think that probably overnight, like I probably had like 2,000 new Instagram followers and I'd never had any kind of like grow, growth like that. And then all of Whoa. a sudden I sort of found myself in this place of like, oh, people are looking at me as like an educator. This is strange. Okay. Like I've, you know, because it kind of turned into this like, oh, you're, that, that show is very, you know, I did this thing and here's how I did it. So people start to get really interested who are also producers and musicians of different levels of amateur to professional people start to really follow you as a producer to learn from and so I have been able to cultivate this beautiful community of different producers and creatives 
and mostly I've built it through my Discord server because basically as a direct reaction to this Andrew Huang opportunity because people who are fans of that become, you know, fans of the producers he has on. And they're fans of me of me as a producer, but also as an artist. And also they're just my friends. So it's been this really beautiful, more holistic feeling um, community building in this like social media digital space to really get to know these people. And I have a Patreon as well. I offer like private calls with them. So like there are some people that I literally talk to in a private Zoom call every month and I know what they're working on and I know what, you know, projects they have questions on and sort of what their goals are. And it's it's something I never even really considered building until I just like all of a sudden had it. And I was like, oh, these people are really engaged and they care and I'm learning from them and they're learning from me. And like that's way more meaningful than an Instagram follow or not. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. Totally. Am I the thing, uh, the thing that I took away from, you know, the whole pandemic is I really like embraced the internet the way that I had never had before. And mm-hmm. you know, we, we were connected through Damien Taylor, who's got his complete producer network and, uh, like just Genius. hanging out there and like seeing people on a Twitch community and then starting the podcast and getting messages. I feel the same way. It's like, I've never thought that like I would have interactions with like people on the internet that would be like fulfilling for me and fulfilling mm-hmm. for them. It's it's really it's really fascinating. It, I'm super stoked that I, I did it. Otherwise, I would have never known it was a thing. So yeah, and it gives you such a for me like my Discord is full of people from all over the world. So like I will awesome. host these listening parties, and there'll be people in Dublin and Australia and like Atlanta and literal in Syria. Like there's literally like teenagers in Syria that are. It's just crazy. Like people from all over are are in these spaces, especially Discord and Twitch. And it just feels like, I don't know, it's it doesn't take away from me in the way that other, you know, sort of more performative social media use does, which we all kind of have to be, you know, we have to be our own billboard a lot of the times. And that can be really exhausting and empty yeah, feeling. So totally. I was gonna ask you about your Twitch, because I, I saw that you've been you've been streaming. I, I was watching one of your replays the other day. Do you think I mean, obviously, you just said it, that it's kind of a, a really interesting platform for producers and mu- musicians. Do you think a lot more people should embrace it? Because I think the community aspect of it and just like the hang and the sharing of knowledge is just really awesome. Is that the is that the vibe that you get? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I definitely start to get fatigue where it's like, oh, my God, how much of my life do I have to like broadcast out <laughs> to people where you can start to feel like, oh, it's another platform that I now have to have millions of followers on. Cool, cool. What I do like is because, like, I just love Discord so much. It feels really just not, like, I don't know. It's just cool. It's 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 such a community conversation at all times. Um, I can kind of just, like, let it exist and it functions, and I don't have to be – I don't have to do everything for it to, to function and, and kind of keep living and breathing. And I think that Twitch is a really – because both of those platforms were built with gamers sort of in mind and gaming communities – I think that it's a really seamless crossover to Twitch. So that's why I feel that I know that people in my Discord want to see me just like work on a track. And I think that I also want to see producers I really like work on tracks. But it does get to a point where it's like, how much of my life am I doing in front of a screen already? Now I have to like look presentable on camera and and be on a screen and then also be brought. So it's it's interesting. It becomes like sometimes a little bit of digital overload for me, but... 
I find that every time I do it, I'm so fulfilled because I'll do these like feedback streams where people can submit who are my patrons. They can submit tracks they want my my thoughts on. And people are so talented. And they're just like, it's so cool to hear, you know, new friends that I'm making on the internet, hear their creative work and get to play it and have other people hear it. Yeah, it's it's really meaningful. So at the end of it, it never feels like work. But when I'm getting ready to stream, I mean, Damien is like, amazing at it. I don't even know how he has been so consistent. He's dedicated. It's really impressive. Very dedicated. The, yeah. the, feed, the feedback stream thing, it always fascinates me because uh, you're right. There's like crazy talented people. And then there's people mm-hmm. that send in things and they're like, this is my like fourth beat. And it's, yeah. and it's good. And you're just like, wow, that's not your fourth beat. I know. And I just think it's really funny that there's, there's something about musicians and artists. They want people to like hear their music and validate it before they put it out because a lot of these people like they're not releasing music they just have all these great tracks on a hard drive and they yeah. just need to take it and put this music out because i've heard amazing shit on damien's stream and some of the mm-hmm. other twitches that i've jumped on i'm like oh man people are monsters like put your music I know. out and and what is so beautiful about somebody like damien is that he is really uplifting people and in- empowering them like that is i find that if i ever have either i'm somebody who's like trying to empower somebody who's, you know, found me and is a fan of me. That relationship is so important because they are like they're they like imprint on each other. It's like you're there, you're my little internet friend. And I like know that I can count on you to like show up to these things. It's really beautiful. And I feel that same way when, you know, somebody who is in a position that's further along in their career than I am really like uplifts me. It feels, you know, I, I feel like an allegiance to them. <laughs> So yeah. I think that it's really powerful. And Damien does such a great job of creating such a like open, beautiful, inviting space yeah. with his streams. And he he curates the people that are there. There's no there's no trolls. Like it's Mm-mm. it's like he's in some of the other communities I've I've found, like if if it's put together by the right kind of person, like it does it's not curated with negativity. It's all about like everybody wants to help everybody. You have the dumbest question in the world you're going to get 50 mm-hmm. answers that are super helpful. Or if you have a really yeah. deep question, you're still going to get 50 answers that are super helpful. Yep, totally. So, and that's like, in my server, that's like one of my main things is like, don't be a dick to people who don't know things. Like we're all learning. It's totally cool to not know things because those yeah. are words I needed to hear when I was coming up, you know? Yeah. I still, I still am coming up, but when I was like really coming up, I really needed to hear that. It's awesome. Yeah. So before we go, one of the things that I'm trying to do in season two of the show is to highlight some of the issues and problems with crediting and finding credits and just the whole credit debacle in the music industry. Do you have any thoughts or anything you'd like to share about credits? I can just think like I'm always really intentional about, um, I don't know, even if it's something like just on social media, you see like huge stars who aren't tagging the people in their photos who are there, like even if they're dancers or they're engineers or whatever, that is a way that that I think is so important to always make sure that you're like listing out full credits. Every time I put something out on all of my social media posts, I'm putting out who who did everything and I'm tagging them because you just like don't know really what could happen from other people knowing of their work and being like, oh, I like this, I'm gonna hire them. And I think that goes for the same thing for DSPs. Everybody, every engineer needs to have a click-through page of all the things that they've worked on. Every oh, yeah. single, you know, it. In there's... It makes me crazy. And I think that actually, <laughs> <laughs> I have opinions. Um, I think that title does a great job with that. And I think that title 
has, I don't know, their user interface, they are definitely superior in terms of like not being as evil as Spotify and they have really robust crediting, but their user interface, I don't think is as good as Spotify's. So like, I, it's awful. I really it's hope awful. that, ev- yeah, I really <laughs> hope that eventually it people will make that switch if it gets better. I don't know, but I mean, yeah, problems aside with my feelings on Spotify, I do think that every, you know, you can open credits. I When I'm listening to music, I'm always looking at who produced and wrote it. And I would love to be knowing who's mixed it, who played on it, who engineered it, who mastered it, who did the album artwork. You know what I mean? I think that the technology is there to do all of that. And it just needs to happen across, like it needs to be legislation across like all of these services because that's how people are going to get work. I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And the, you know, the thing that I think you know, people like the big companies will leave the names out of it. They like offer this olive branch of like the Max Martin playlist. And you're like, okay, cool. Max Martin doesn't need a playlist. Okay. Let's talk about like all of the up and coming writers that just had their first like Billboard top 100 that they've never heard of. Like those people need to have a playlist because they're the ones that need to get discovered. Max Martin's fine. Talented. No no knock. I just, I use his name because, you know, everybody knows him. But that's great. That's that's great insight. And like I said, I'm I'm gonna ask everybody and just you know I just want I want people to credit each other. Like you you mentioned earlier that you wanted to make sure somebody was credited. Can't remember earlier in the show. So anyway, thank you for your thoughts on credits. Yeah. So now to the the traditional closing questions of of the show. Was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? Hmm. That's funny. Um. Well. I recently had somebody <laughs> I recently had somebody close to me ask very um not intentionally in a mean way ask what I was going to do if I didn't make it and um it felt like a dagger to my heart and then it made me realize you know I've already made it I make my living off of music I survive living in LA okay on some level I have to define this as making it because I there's so many other things I just cannot control so the fact that I don't work at a food truck like I used to, I don't walk dogs like I used to my first few years of LA. I have now been like a freelance, you know, singer, composer, artist, producer, writer for a lot of years now. And that, that I think on some level, I really do try to remind myself that that is making it. It is. It's super hard to pay your bills. It's super hard. And I, you know, it's really easy for people who aren't in it to reduce it down to like, oh, you're not on American Idol. How will you, how can we get you up there? And it's like, you don't get it. Yeah. So I, but I think that, you know, I definitely do have these things. Like for me, if I can ever play the Greek, that's a big thing for me to be like, I, I think I've, I've made us, I've made it to a thing that I, that I at one point would have thought was making it. And I still feel that way. So I think that I have like sort of these targets in the same way that I was talking about, you know, dressage songs being in films and TV that I really care about. I think that that kind of thing. But I I guess experiences I've I've already had, like definitely singing in front of 5,000 people at the Shrine or at ACL, being flown to ACL, like that was cool, you know? So moments like that where I'm like, this feels, I with that same project that I sang on Ellen for being flown to New York to like sing on Good Morning America. It was like, this is making it. This is a thing. This is really cool. And, um, yeah, so I, I don't know, try to, 
I guess I try to have like a somewhere that I'm always looking toward, but then also really trying to have gratitude for what I already, what already is and what already exists because that also has to be enough (laughs) because otherwise you can't survive this. It's so frustrating that somebody would ask you like, you know, what would you do if you don't make it to somebody that's like, their career is music. Like you're not, you're not doing something else to make money. You're, you're just doing music for like a lot of different places. I really think it's so hard for people who aren't in a creative field to understand that because it does feel very binary. It's like, all right, well, at some point, if you don't make it, if you're not on the radio, then you pack up and go home and like with your tail between your legs and go move in with your parents. And it's like, that would have happened years ago if that if that were my thing. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think that, <laughs> yes, it was frustrating to hear, but I also have to have a little bit of perspective because I do know how niche and specific this lifestyle is and how it like truly does not make sense to people. I remember I was launching like, I think I was releasing my EP and I was like launching new merch on my on my site and my aunt looked at me and was like, I truly don't understand what you do. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, honestly, me neither. <laughs> so you just have to like, you have to, I don't know, look at that kind of comment with just like love and you don't understand. And that's cool. Yeah. Like, that well, it's hard to relate me. to. It's hard to yeah. relate to. Yeah. That's great. Okay. I yeah. love it. Uh, so the, the final question is uh, maybe you touched on a few of these things in your last answer, but what right now is your biggest goal that you can share with us? And what is mm-hmm. the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? Ooh, great question. My biggest goal is to really have my live touring situation go because I have spent, I mean, and it's it's been extremely helpful for pandemic times. Um, I've spent my time in LA in my studio, you know, like I've spent it writing and in the studio and that has given me the freedom to not need to be on the road to make a living. And so now I think that I'm looking at it as, Okay, I I really do want to go and be performing, and I I want to go play the Greek. I want to be doing these things because that's I don't know. It's that thing like that thing in high school, right? Where I was like the lead, and it was like they love me. It's that thing. It's that like it's not even as selfish as that either. It's like I need I need to feel that energy exchange with people who care because they're there, and I care that they're there, and I feel most seen when I'm doing it. Um. And so I think that on a smaller scale, um, I am doing a show at the Moroccan Lounge in LA, October 18th. And so I'm just starting to like totally redesign my show, get the rehearsals booked, get that going. Cool. It feels really scary to like, I don't know, come out of hiding because I've <laughs> I've been living behind like, you know, I've like filmed some live things, but they're edited and they're like, it's, you know, I have control over the final product and I right, haven't had right. to be in front of a crowd of people. And it's something that I love, but I also feel like quite shy about at this stage of being so insular from the pandemic. So that is the next small thing that I'm doing is like re-diving back into my Ableton set and getting it sort of built towards what I want my show to look like. Cool. Do you do it solo or do you have anybody on stage with you? Yeah, for this one, I'm going to have a drummer and a bassist on stage with me and I'll be playing synths and combo of singing and have some Ableton trickery going on behind behind the scenes. But yeah, I've I did the thing where I built out like a whole solo Ableton set and it just felt like I was drowning in tech and I hated it. So <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna That's get awesome. away from that because real awesome. drums are cool. <laughs> That's right. That's what yeah. they're for. 
Yeah, that's uh, what they're for. Keely, this has been uh, this has been so much fun. Do you want to share with people uh, where they can find you on the internet, on Twitch, on Spotify? There will yeah. be links too. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a great combo. Um, yeah, so you can find me. All of my handles are at Dressage Music, so D-R-E-S-A-G-E Music. Kind of all the info that you need are going to be on my Instagram or my website, which is dressage.la. That, yeah, uh, I don't know. I think I've done a pretty good job of, like, pointing people to all the, all of my things on the Internet, so... <laughs> You yeah. can find my stuff. They'll find you. Sure. I'll be uh, I'll be on your Twitch trying to steal your tricks after listening to your nice. record. So um, love it. I, I followed you earlier today. So <laughs> awesome. Well, thank Thanks. you so much. This was uh, this was a great hang. This is one of my first recordings for the second year of the show. So I'm I'm happy Ooh. it's you. It was a lot of fun. Oh, thanks, Travis. This was great. That's it for episode 53. Thanks to Keely for coming on the show. Definitely check out her project Dressage. Like I said in the interview, I really love it. I think you should all go listen to it right now. And thank you to all of you for listening to the show. Like I said in the intro today, anytime you want to share the show with a friend, it is greatly appreciated. We've all grown this community together, and I really do mean that. I really do appreciate all of you sharing the show. And finally, don't forget to join us over at completeproducer.net. It's a great hang. I've talked about it before. And if you're not hip to the online studios that Damien has set up over there, definitely check that out as well. So on that note, I will see y'all in two weeks for our next new episode.